if we can remove the stigma from weight gain and say, yeah, this is actually a pretty normal thing that happens to the majority of people that lose weight. Here's what you can do to help you maintain. But if you regain your weight, that's a normal thing that happens. Like you're not a bad person. You're not lacking self-control or willpower. You didn't fail. Let's just look at what changed and see if there are things that you might want to do differently going forward. And if not, then guess what? This is your maintainable body weight at this lifestyle for you. And if you really like the life you're living, this is the weight that you're at. I don't know, you know, like, I think that that's like, I hope that's the focus for most people is like, the, is the life you're living the one that you want to be living right now? Are there places where you could seek more balance? Look at that. And then like weight will change um, as energy balance changes. And like if energy balance is changing because you're like, oh man, I really like myself. I'm taking really good care of myself. I walk my dog all the time. This is super great. I love vegetables. Awesome. If it's because you feel like you're starving yourself and you don't go out with your friends anymore, that might not be sustainable. Welcome back to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast, guys. My name is Jackson Burden. I am the host of this podcast. I am an online coach, personal trainer, and gym owner in Auckland, New Zealand. And this podcast is all about bringing evidence-based and rational information to vegans, vegetarians, and plant-curious people um, as you journey through this lifestyle, as you move towards a more plant-focused diet. Today, we have an absolute ripper of an episode. This is Dr. Gabrielle Fundaro. She's a former assistant professor of exercise science and holds a PhD in human nutrition, foods, and exercise from Virginia Tech, as well as a Bachelor of Science in Exercise, Sport, and Health Education from Radford University. Gabrielle is a certified health coach with certifications in FODMAPs and sports nutrition. She's also a member of the board of both Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind and the Sports Nutrition Association. It's safe to say Gab is well qualified and I've had the pleasure of attending many of Gab's seminars, both in person and online. Today's episode is one I have looked forward to for a while now and over the past few years, you may have heard the terms anti-diet, intuitive eating, and health at every size, and also maybe weight neutral. In an industry that is predicated on helping humans lose weight in order to improve their lives, the above terms have caused quite a stir. Can we really be healthy and overweight? Does intuitive eating just mean eating anything you want at all times with no regard to nutrition, quality, or health? Are you saying that all diets are bad, and people should never try and lose weight? The reality is, we live in a world that is locked into a bind with weight stigma. Fat shaming and fat phobia are becoming more and more commonplace as people seek the quote-unquote ideal body. But where does all this come from? And how does the anti-diet movement plan to combat an obesogenic environment without weight loss? As a coach who tries hard to do the absolute best by my clients, listen to the goals and seek to understand why they are of value to them, I want to make sure that I'm not doing my clients a disservice by helping them to lose weight, only for them to gain a little back again along with a side order of disordered eating practices and worse health markers than when they started. These are all questions I had when looking into the themes of weight neutral approaches and the answers are far more surprising than you might think. It's so easy for us to read a headline, see a post on Instagram, or hear a conversation in the gym and misconstrue the whole message of these movements. 
Gab is an absolute powerhouse on this topic and has been putting out a stack of evidence-based information on how to bridge the gap between an industry focused on weight loss and a population that can't keep the weight off. Let's dig in, guys. You're in for a big one, but trust me, it's worth a couple of listens. This is episode 24 on the anti-diet movement, intuitive eating, and weight stigma with Gabrielle Fandaro. You are listening to the Vegan Body Coach Podcast, all about optimizing your strength, fitness, and physique through a plant-focused diet. My name is Jackson Burton, and I'm a nutrition and training coach for vegans, the plant-centric, and plant-curious. I'm sitting down with athletes, experts, and influencers around the world to inspire you to create your best vegan body yet. Okay, Gab, so I guess um, a good place for us to start is I'll give the listeners a little bit of a background as to where I first came across you. And I've been following, I think, your stuff via Renaissance Periodization for a little while and really enjoying that content. Um, and then you were announced as a speaker at the UEBC 2019 in Melbourne, um, which I love going to and, and popped onto there and enjoyed your um, presentation on gut health, I think it was, which was you know sort of your your main thing that you're talking about um, a lot at that time and a lot of presentations. And I think like with, <laughs> with experts like yourself in specific areas, you get, um, you get given these, well, you get like really good at presenting these one topics and then everyone wants you to present on that same topic over and over again, um, which I'm sure can be, can be tedious at times. And, and like this episode here, we're going to talk about something that you've been probably talking about at length for the past, you know, year or so. Um, <laughs> But it was, yeah, it was actually a, a, a really good presentation. I really enjoyed it. But also, I was quite, um, I guess, impressed, maybe surprised um, at your wealth of knowledge and all the other, other areas of physique and strength sports and things like this that probably people don't really realize because they just hear you speaking about gut health all the time. Um, mm-hmm. But as I said to you in the email, I kind of ran into you in the lunch line, stealing all the tofu, kind of naively thinking that no one else in this conference would be eating tofu. But then I have, you know, the gut health guru herself obviously wants to eat some plants. So you you kindly told me, hey, you're going to leave any of that tofu for anybody else? And I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, somebody else might want some. <laughs> Um, but did you want to give the listeners a little bit of a background as to, to what you're all about, what you do and, and where you're at at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I, I really, I had such an amazing time in Australia. Um, it was my first time visiting um, and we really went ham. It was about three yeah. and a half weeks, you know, um, East Coast, West Coast. Wow. And um, yeah, so it was an amazing trip. Um, and yeah, at the time, I would say that year was marked by primarily speaking about, um, you know, kind of coll- colloquially gut health. Yes. Um, but I was trying to bring um, you know, an evidence-based, um, perspective, uh, and dispel a lot of the myths and misinformation used for, for marketing. Um, so I was speaking a great deal about, um, the gut microbiome and its relationship with human health and performance, um, and sort of the, the tri-directional relationship between physical activity, diet, and, uh, gut microbiota. And that was the focus of my dissertation. So my PhD um, was out of Virginia Tech. It was in uh, human nutrition, foods, and exercise. And I looked at the relationship between the microbiome and um, metabolic dysregulation during high-fat feeding. And that was really when I 
um, became exposed to the, the gut microbiome for the first time, it was actually a little bit of a serendipitous event because we were a skeletal muscle phys lab. So really we were just dosing these mice or dosing skeletal muscle with an endotoxin that comes from certain bacteria in the gut. And I am just endlessly curious. And so that's how I found my way um, into the arena of, of gut health. Um, but my bachelor's is in exercise, sport and health ed. And I knew um, that I wanted to do something related to exercise science. Um, and then I realized that I wanted to teach. And I think what I didn't realize at the time was that teaching or, or tutoring for me was a way to um, connect with people and help them feel more capable of doing something. Mm. And I thought that that's sort of how teaching would look, you know, so I went on to, to get my PhD and I was an assistant professor of exercise science for four years and um, taught sport nutrition and um, anatomy and phys. And um, that is when Mike from, uh, Dr. Mike from Renaissance Periodization found me via the ISSN Facebook group. So I was having a collegial debate with someone about something to do with, with um, sport nutrition. And he saw the content that I was producing and um, thought that I would make a good RP coach. And so he recruited me. And after a year of both teaching and coaching, I decided to resign um, from my professorship before I had to kind of go up for, for promotion and really, you know, commit to that. Right. And um, about maybe six months after resigning, then I also started my own business, uh, Vitamin PhD Nutrition Telehealth. And so I was working with two um, diverse um, and, and different kind of groups of, of clientele. Um, you know, with RP, there's a, a specific kind of approach. There's an RP style of coaching and an RP style of training and nutrition. And then the clients that I was working with via um, uh, VPHD Nutrition Telehealth, um, it was just a very different sort of perspective and, and set of goals and, and a way of interacting. And um, after, oh, maybe about a year of doing that, I realized that there were just a lot of things that I wanted to um, improve about my coaching, a lot of things that I wanted to learn. And um, I was kind of drawing from my roots as an educator that there is, there's so much more to coaching than telling someone what to do. Right. <laughs> you know, um, it's, it's not just the, the provision of information. Um, and I wanted to gain just a deeper understanding of the psychology of eating and behavior change. And so that's when I started to pursue um, more education in motivational interviewing right. and um, some alternative ways of acquiring nutrients, you know, sort yeah. of weight neutral non-diet approaches. And that's how sort of um, the, the Bridging the Gap article series got started. And then I started collaborating with Shannon Beer, um, who I know you've had on. And uh, we came across, I think we, we came up with the comprehensive coaching framework in the same way that Mill and Rolnick came up with motivational interviewing, right. that there are theories um, that, that fit with the model, but the model is something that came from just practical experience that we found, okay, interacting with individuals in this way seems to have this outcome. Um, and there's support for that. There's empirical support for that in the literature. And then there are also sort of other best practices and effective interventions that seem to help people um, decide to change and then stick to those changes for a long period of time. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, I think there's just so much to coaching, like the intricacies of it that are 
just so much further than just telling someone to do like usually i mean a lot of people can find the information anywhere if they want to but the reason they're probably coming to a coach is because they aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing or what they want you to do so it's more than just you know giving someone hey do this and that right um and i watched your motivational interview lecture through mnu and i thought that was incredibly well done and i go back to my notes all the time with that to try and think of okay how can i approach this client conversation a little bit differently or just ask some better questions um so it's really enlightening stuff and I guess, yeah, like you said, you guys have just sort of developed this or I've, I've been sort of watching this evolution of how you are now approaching coaching um, with your comprehensive coaching system and and the Bridging the Gap series, which is what I'd love to dive into a whole bunch today. Um, and I loved that series and it was something that I guess when I read it, I was like, yes, this is so needed right now because we're at this point where like in a lot of industries and 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 you know whether it's political or whatever there's that the there's the far extremes of either side and mm-hmm. you know we're seeing the far extreme of one side of you know anti-diet movement and then the far extreme of the other side where it's you know everyone needs a six-pack um so and often with a lot of these things the 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 truth lies in the middle ground and in the gray area um so i'm loving what you guys are putting out so did you want to sort of maybe discuss um i guess where your initial sort of need you saw this need arise for this bridging the gap series and what that bridging the gap series entails yeah um so yeah i think you know i've been trying to come up with a way to describe like the bridging the gap um article series versus you know the comprehensive coaching framework okay um because they they are sort of different and i i think even shannon and i embody different perspectives and together come up with this sort of 360 view um, of the industry and of the individuals who who exist within the industry. Um, so I would say that the Bridging the Gap article series is a, 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 a socio-political and, and cultural and now historical perspective on the fitness industry. So looking at the origins of calorie counting in the early 1900s, all the way up through modern diet versus anti-diet culture and trying to explain why they exist, um, what their beliefs and values are, why we have the gap (laughs) and and how we can possibly or, or potentially bridge that through enhancing the understanding um, or, or in creating maybe meaning where we, we haven't created solid meaning and we're sort of using two different words or the same word to mean two different things. So trying to provide clear definitions um, and notice and point out where people might have some misconceptions, hmm. where the data might be um, fudged a little bit in the interest of making an argument. Right. And, um, you know, how we can maybe look back on the history of our industry and and not repeat those same mistakes. Yeah. So, so that's kind of the bridging the gap. And then comprehensive coaching is a way that we can coach and embody that perspective of working within the gray area. Like we call it the messy middle where right. we don't have to pick one side or the other that we pick the side of the client <laughs> and that we prioritize um, their, their values their health in a very holistic way. And I don't mean holistic, like woo woo. I mean, holistic, like, you know, considering all aspects of that individual, like the context of that individual, 
um, so that we don't end up um, coaching them into a place that is unsustainable or that causes um, harm that we could have reduced or mitigated in some way. Um, mm -hmm. So I think it is, um, you know, we've described it as being conscientious. So yeah. we want to, you know, be, we realize that we have a responsibility to our clients and we have a responsibility to our colleagues. And so we want to do the best work that we can and that we want to also um, be, be compassionate and have empathy for the people that we're working with and our colleagues. So reduce suffering or not cause any further suffering, understand where they're coming from, meet them where they are and accept them. So, you know, acceptance in MI is, is sort of a very specific form of acceptance, but I would say it's sort of not arguing with the reality of what is, not saying like, you should do this or you shouldn't do this other thing um, and to collaborate with them so that wherever you end up, it's been a team effort. Mm. And I don't want, I don't want to, you know, put post, uh, post this as something that's completely novel. Like we, we came up with this right. or it's the best way or anything like that. But it seems to be, um, as you mentioned, you know, we've heard from a lot of people that has, it's, it's needed, you know, people mm. have been looking for something that, um, is malleable and that helps them help their clients um, in more diverse ways. And, um, you know, we have tried our best to keep it evidence-based and work with other folks who are more experty, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, in the field of psychology so that we can continue to refine it. Um, mm. So the, that's kind of the purpose of those two things. Yeah, no, it's it's great because I guess myself as a practitioner and a coach myself, it's, it's a case of, I feel like I'm in this middle ground between well, where I want to do the best for my clients, right? And I'm because we're in this culture of you know weight stigma and hey, you need to look a certain way and blah blah blah. The, there's always going to be people that are going to be, I guess, for the foreseeable future until something drastic happens in our society. There's always going to be people that are going to come to me and say, hey, I want to lose weight, and I want to do right by them by. Um, appreciating their goals and understanding their goals and accepting their goals, but also trying to, I guess, approach the situation and give them a method that is, uh, that is evidence-based, but that is also going to take into account all the other facets of health and psychological health and, mm -hmm. and um, not just look at the cosmetic outcomes of what their goal is. So mm -hmm. I guess what are we bridging the gap between and what are these two sides to the, to the conversation that we need to be aware of Um when looking at sort of uh, diet culture? Yeah. So I think that what people probably would recognize would be, we, we call them anti-diet. So people, I think, uh, recognize that. And then the other side would be diet culture, or um, I, I kind of use culture of dieting because I think that sometimes diet culture um, means something a little bit more specific than the culture of dieting. Yes. So the other caveat is that that none of these have been specifically defined. Like you can't go to a textbook and say like, this is what this is, you know, um, not yet anyway. And right. so I've done my best to, you know, through reading a lot of different books and, and kind of historical textbooks um, and really old dieting books from like the early 1900s wow. that the I would say the culture of dieting refers to intentionally reducing the size of one's body to fit a specific ideal of image that also represents a specific ideal of character. Mm. And anti-diet 
challenges that entire um, sort of philosophy. So anti-diet challenges the idea that a certain body type is preferable over another body type, that intentional weight loss um, will inherently uh, improve health, um, and also brings to light a lot of the um, sociocultural uh, inequities. So the fact that diet, the culture of dieting um, is privileged, um, primarily white middle-class females um, and males that are able to manipulate their food intake um, and their bodies in such a way to meet this ideal. And that is not going to be possible for every individual. Wow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the, the origins really of the anti-diet movement are in other forms of activism from the mid to late 1960s and sort of toward the 70s, they kind of became their own movement. Um, but that's really what they're they're getting at. They're, it is a social justice movement. Um, and I think that what we are, the reason that this gap exists is there's, there's a few fold. I would say there are uh, the main points of contention would be beliefs about um, health at various body sizes, beliefs about the benefits of intentional weight loss, and beliefs about people's right to access um, healthcare. Mm. Yeah, I guess um, it'd be, I'd be interested to, I guess, cover off some of the maybe um, misconceptions around dieting to begin with would be quite good to start with i guess um when we look at and i know you've you've spoken about this in some of your presentations before around the statistics of like successful dieting um Mm -hmm. where you know it seems like the majority of people who do start a weight loss intervention will gain back a lot of that weight in a a short period of time um which is it's really grim statistics and you know when i work with my clients i'm like okay i need this client to be one of the good statistics you know i want them to be one of the, that that successfully maintains that body weight long term um but there's you know there's only so much we can do in providing the methods and strategies to help them and at the end of the day i still see a lot of people you know regressing back to where they were so can you speak a little bit to those statistics and, and sort of what they are um and yeah i guess um how we can maybe go about, you know, helping, helping our clients to, to, you know, maintain that body weight long-term. Yeah. I think, you know, as I've read more and I've listened to sort of the messages that people are using commonly, I think some of it is that we have lost context. So when we look at the statistics of long-term dieters, long-term weight loss, and then weight loss maintenance in, in the, majority of studies, we're looking at individuals with overweight or obesity. And we classify, um, in most cases, successful weight loss as having lost at least 10% of one's body weight and kept it off for over a year. So that's considered to be successful weight loss. And um, I would say, you know, being not too conservative, I've seen estimates of around maybe 20% of individuals are are capable of doing that. Mm. When we take it out to five years, uh, it's almost almost no one, <laughs> almost no one does that. Um, and in some cases, people have gained back uh, more than than the weight that they had originally lost by five years. 
So a small percentage of people do actually maintain out to five years. So Kevin Hall had a study on this and they, they saw that that in most cases, people were maintaining a loss of about maybe five to seven percent body weight in the individuals, in the small number of individuals, maybe five to 10 percent that maintain out to five years. But there are some caveats with that. So we're looking at individuals with overweight or obesity. We're looking at individuals who have used a, uh, a moderate energy deficit and have changed their habits. So according to the, the uh, National Weight Control Registry, so in the U.S., we have this compendium of data from individuals who are considered to be successful weight loss maintainers. Um, and they have a, a general awareness of their energy intake, of their body weight. So they use some form of self-monitoring. They maintain um, high levels of physical activity, estimated to be about an hour a day, uh, an hour a day. Um, and they don't follow one specific diet. So they're, they don't follow like a keto diet or a low fat diet. Like they, they just kind of generally estimate it's a, a calorie controlled or calorie aware diet. Um, but that is not the same thing. And, and the other thing is that we found that there are better outcomes with, with individuals who are losing um, weight uh, for the purpose of improving their health. And what's really interesting is that even though, yes, at the end of those five years, in most cases, we're seeing maintenance of a very small percentage of body weight loss, actually, the improvements in health markers are still present. So it's not that people need to lose an appreciable amount of weight to see improvements in cardiometabolic risk factors. And that's the same if we look at a weight neutral approach too, that individuals at the end of a weight neutral approach will also see similar improvements with very little change in body weight at the end of one year. So um, that's something to keep in mind because that is arguably a different group of people compared to individuals who are of normative body weight. So they do not have overweight or obesity and they are intentionally losing weight for aesthetic reasons. Yes. Now, if we take a person who has a normal body weight um, and not no elevation in risk factors, or even a person with overweight, because they quite often don't have an elevation in, in risk factors either, and, have, and they want to pursue intentional weight loss, what are the benefits? I mean, do, are there health benefits? Not, not entirely. I mean, not that we can see very clearly compared to other groups. Um, are, might there be psychological benefits? There are um, temporary elevations in markers of self-esteem, but that is brought back down to baseline if weight is regained. So when we're looking at, you know, what are the risks versus the benefits of intentional weight loss? It depends on who's intentionally losing weight and for what reason. Mm. So, you know, looking at someone who is of normative body size, who is losing weight only for aesthetic purposes, who is maybe hoping that intentional weight loss will improve their body image, that person is at greater risk of developing an eating pathology than they are of gaining much benefit out of that situation. Yeah, I mean, I guess probably a lot of the people that I work with would be considered normal body size, mm -hmm. right? And they don't necessarily need to lose body weight to improve health markers and it just comes down to like hey i want to feel better in my clothes or look better yep. at the beach or whatever it may be mm -hmm. um and i guess a good question is to ask why do you think this is so prolific in our society that this is just one of these 
all important things that everyone wants to suddenly just you know everyone wants to drop that little bit of extra weight it's like what if you just didn't drop the weight and you just stayed as you are like there seems to be this like i'm trying to reach this pinnacle and my life will be way better when i drop this five kilograms yeah yeah what do you think that is well i mean i think it's hard to it's hard to speak to like the rest of the world yeah totally. you know because the the what i've looked into has been very u.s centric but of course, I think because of just the state of the global economy, um, the U.S. has a strong influence on other parts of the world. But the the thin ideal seems to have originated in the early to mid 1900s um, in the U.S. So prior to that, the having um, a larger body size was indicative of wealth and being well fed and being in um, a higher socioeconomic, uh, of higher socioeconomic status. So there, that was a status symbol. And, um, you know, women who went away to college had to write home and say, oh, don't worry, I didn't lose any weight um, because there was a concern that women, especially if they were to go to school, if they were to, to use, um, if their brains were using more energy than normal, some sort of wasting and that they wouldn't be able to reproduce. So there was a real concern at that time um, about weight loss. Now around, um, around world war one, the U S started to engage in food conservation because we were sending the, like uh, the, the high, the more energy dense foods, the refined flour and beef and, and fat and things like that overseas for allies and for the troops. And so there was a lot of food propaganda, a lot of food um, conservation propaganda. And pretty much at exactly the same time, the general public became aware of calories and we started to be aware of energy balance. Mm. And so then it, what, it became common knowledge that um, body fat was not necessarily due to like a glandular issue, that it was actually from eating. We had now this cause and effect. Oh, body size is from eating food. And with that awareness, we kind of fueled another aspect of social pressure to conform and that it became a, a, a symbol of good citizenship to have a smaller body because that means that you are not hoarding food on your body. Well, yeah. So then, yeah, so so they even had they had um, phrases, you know, food will win the war and victory over self. You're right. Wow. Yes. So there was these cultural changes in the U.S. that gave rise to the value of self-control, of willpower, victory over the self, victory over the physical body. This is when we saw prohibition. Um, you know, so it was really about, you know, the the way your body looked started to indicate what your character might be the your you know your moral fiber and so that's when the thin ideal really started to emerge and there are also you know racial influences in that as well and there are class influences in that as well because the perspective of of um of individuals who were in lower socioeconomic statuses or immigrants was okay. They are unrefined and they are now in the larger bodies. And so thinness, slimness was a way to say, I'm above the risks um, associated with food shortage. I actually can conserve food. And so I'm not going to hoard it on my body. And that actually lasted through the depression 
So again, it was a symbol of status and a symbol of safety to say, I can manipulate my body. I don't have to be at the whim of whatever is going on with the lower socioeconomic classes. Um, and it's really interesting to see that because, you know, in during the Great Depression, this is like the, the U.S. has not been in a worse financial situation. There are people, so millions of people unemployed without food. And so you would expect that it would shift back and like the yeah. people with abundance, a larger body size would become the ideal again. Yeah. But it just didn't. Like fad diets absolutely exploded. And wow. what was different about these fad diets is that now they're quite often uh, promoted by medical practitioners who had started to link uh, body size with with life expectancy based on um, statistics that were used by life insurance companies. Right. And um, and so this is why a lot of people are seeing like the origins of BMI are sort of classist and racist. Um, I don't know if that's how the original um, mathematician meant for that to, to be applied, but it wasn't actually initially created to be um, an, an indicator of health status. It right. was used to um, find the averages of the common man who at that time was a Caucasian person. Yeah. So um, it's really interesting to kind of see how that all comes together. It's, yeah. it's just the intersection of like nutritional science and changes in um, ideologies and values in the United States. And they have just outlasted even the depression. And today it is still um, a status symbol to have a a, a, a lean, you know, sort of sculpted body because like who can afford to do that? People who have right. the money and the time to go to the gym and get a personal trainer and count their macros. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting looking back at history and, and seeing how these all these things intertwine and mm -hmm. yeah, so much of the status and the privilege that comes into things. It's just, it really is mind blowing when you start to look a little bit deeper. I guess this is probably where the a lot of the, the I maybe I don't want to call it backlash, but the other side comes into the picture in the modern day where we have um, health at every size movements and we have intuitive eating movements, um, which I initially, I think, you know, I was one of those ones who kind of read into it the wrong way and, and mm -hmm. sort of was, you know, misunderstood it like a lot of other people, um, especially like health at every size when I just saw the, the title and thought, you know, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but sort of thought um, you are healthy at every size as opposed to mm -hmm. like you can be healthy at every size. I don't know if that's the distinction there, but maybe you can run through some of the, or what really healthy at every size is and intuitive eating, whether they're sort of aligned there um, mm -hmm. and maybe some of the misconceptions around what people um, yeah, are getting wrong about those those movements and those sort of methods of, of eating. Yeah. You know what? I love that you you asked that, and um, even both of the so so respectfully, neither one of those definitions is actually correct. <laughs> perfect, perfect, yeah. Um, <laughs> but I think that's one of the common misconceptions. Yeah, um, yeah, and and you know, I think it is. It, it's just unfortunately, same thing kind of happened with intuitive eating. You know, the title doesn't really um, represent the content. Yeah. And so, yeah, so people look at that and say, well, people can't be healthy at every size. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's, that's, that's definitely not what they're, they're claiming. Um, they, so health at every size is about increasing access to resources that would support health. So everyone can engage in health-seeking behaviors, but not that every size is healthy. 
In fact, it's really about separating the assumptions we might make about a person's health based on their size, and also about um, removing intentional weight loss as a goal, because it's not a behavior. Intentional weight loss, a person can't in this moment, I'm be, I'm acting intentional weight loss. No, right. yeah. we can focus on behaviors, you know, that would support health and well-being. Mm. Um, and that includes eating for well-being. So having a dietary pattern that is not uh, moral in any way, but takes into consideration one's individual needs, you know, say you have an allergy or something doesn't digest well. Um, and that's where we could talk about intuitive eating. I can kind of take that as like a subsection. Gotcha. Um, so eating for well-being, um, joyful movement. So moving one's body, engaging in forms of physical activity that they enjoy, uh, respectful care and um, challenging and, and challenging of weight stigma. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about the um, kind of the intentional uh, the effects that we would hope that Hayes would have, it's both individual and institutional. And so we're trying to promote or the movement is trying to promote a shared responsibility for health so that individuals can engage in these health-seeking behaviors. But guess what? They have to have the resources to do that. So that means that they need to have access to um, uh, tangible things that would work for them in a variety of different body sizes, even something as practical as exercise clothing, um, that they need to have access to healthcare that is respectful of people in different body sizes and doesn't assume that, oh, this medical problem is due to this person's body size. Yeah. That we also take into consideration the effects of weight stigma, of um, weight uh, uh, bias and of discrimination. So, um, and, and also a fat phobia. So people's kind of fear of body fat, of gaining fat, um, their negative stereotypes and connotations of people in large bodies. Mm. So that's what it is. It's, it's trying to change not just individual behavior and not just, um, you know, at the institutional level, but saying, can we come together and find a way that we can support people's pursuit of health if they want to pursue it? And also respect their autonomy if they do not wish to do that, which mm -hmm. is, I think, you know, the hardest thing for people to really come to terms with. Because in the U.S. Um, and probably in other parts of the world, health is a value. It's a it's considered to be a pan value. So everyone assumes that um, we should be making choices that are good for their health. And if we're not making those choices, then we are doing something wrong. But the problem is that health doesn't have one clear definition and that it is also a values judgment. So we might look at what a person is doing and say, oh, that's healthy. And another person looks at and says, no, that's not healthy. And they could both be right because health is subjective. Right. But quite often people are thinking just in terms of physical health. And so they look at a person in a large body and they say, there's no way that this person can be healthy because they are at increased risk of developing a disease. So they have a belief that even before someone is actually diagnosed with some disease, that pre or pre-disease or increased risk of disease is the same thing as being unhealthy. So that's, I think, where people have a difficult time um, getting on board 
with Hayes, even though I'm sure if we said like, hey, what do you think about like increasing people's access to, you know, um, walking areas and green spaces? They'd be like, yeah, be like, okay, this is actually what Hayes is about. They're like, no, that sounds dumb. um, I think that's part of it, too, is just like when we have biases, when we have, you know, political leanings and whatnot, and we look at that and think like, oh, that's super liberal or whatever. Like, that's why I have a problem with it. Or, Mm. you know, the misconceptions like, oh, they're saying everyone's healthy at every size and that's right. not what they're saying, you know? Yeah. And in fact, I think that's even, I think that that's kind of even part of what might be um, reducing people's ability to see the whole movement is that people are really focusing in on this, like one aspect and arguing about whether um, obesity can be healthy, you know, whether people in large bodies can be healthy. So obviously we do have medically healthy, uh, metabolically healthy obesity. Like this is a person who has a BMI that's considered to be obese, but metabolically totally normal. And then we also have metabolically unhealthy, normal weight bodies. So yes, we can say that that exists. But what if we said, hey, it's okay if obesity is not always healthy. It's okay that 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 can exist, then we don't have to argue about that anymore. Like health has become this ticket into acceptance. And now instead of saying like, let's just say that people are acceptable because they're acceptable. Like if you're, if you're unhealthy, if you have a disease still acceptable, we're saying, Oh no, we have to prove that obesity can be healthy. Now it's still the, the, the core issue, if that makes sense, Mm. is really the debate about whether unhealthy is acceptable. And it's just that we have kind of taken this like side road, you know, we're looking at like one manifestation of it, Hmm. but still people are trying to vie for like, this can be healthy. Um, No, no, it's not healthy. Well, what if we just said like, okay, maybe sometimes it's not, maybe sometimes people are not healthy for a number of different reasons. Right. We can make that acceptable and then work from there and say, regardless of your health status, we want to increase your access to resources so you can use them if you want to. Mm. And if you don't want to, then you have a right to do that. I mean, right. this was something that I don't, you know, if you guys had the debate about like um, euthanasia, right? you know, like yeah. does, do, does a person have the right to end their own life? Mm-hmm. That's like a huge debate. You yeah, know, I think this is along those same lines. Does a person have the right to decide to be unhealthy? Right. Yeah. Wow. It's a massive question, actually. I've really never thought about it like that in the sense that, if they, yeah, they might actually, you know, choose to be unhealthy. It's like not, you know, we don't have to assume that everybody wants a health status or wants to engage in healthy behaviors, right? Um, but I guess, yeah, I guess with an intuitive eating and when I when I read through those, is it 10 steps intuitive eating? Yeah, when I read through those, okay, when I read through those, I was nodding my head to every single one. And I was like, wow, like I kind of had this view of it, um, I guess from like, you know, just, you know, your average Instagram account, there's like, I'm an intuitive eater. And it's like, and it that, they don't really understand the actual 10 step process. They're just like, oh, I just, I just eat what I feel like, blah, blah, blah. And I can maintain my, my epic six pack or whatever. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's not really intuitive eating. And when I read through this, mm-hmm. the steps, I was like, wow, this is bang on with what I think a lot of people hopefully will want to include in their lifestyles is these mm-hmm. these practices around um 
uh, mindful eating and around uh, gentle nutrition and, and accepting your body and, and, and being aware of hunger cues and satiety cues. And we talked about this with the Shannon Beer as well as you know, getting back to using those cues. Um, but who do you think would be, I guess, the who do you think is this most appropriate for is this intuitive eating practice? Um, because obviously with someone who has already engaged in a diet intervention in the past, they have some level of nutritional knowledge there and something some kind of like external restriction that they can tap into as opposed to i think with intuitive eating it's it's more it's less about having these this like huge nutritional knowledge and it's it's less about putting restrictions on what you eat and things like that so how who would it be i guess more appropriate to Mm -hmm. well intuitive eating has been studied in individuals with um binge eating syndrome And so, and it does have limitations in terms of applications to other types of eating disorder um, and has kind of only really been like kind of longitudinally studied in people without uh, an eating pathology where they they look and they they will do, um, you know, have people answer a questionnaire that um, quantifies their level of intuitive eatingness and then kind of follows them over the course of the year and just sees what happens, you know, with their weight and things like that. Um, so it's not necessarily an intervention where they had them change something and say, engage in intuitive eating. Okay. Uh, but it does appear to reduce um, uh, eating disinhibition. So that is uh, that occurs when people have uh, tried to inhibit or restrain themselves and then they are around a really tempting food and they have a hard time controlling themselves. And opportunistic eating, so kind of the same thing, just eating because food is available. So it actually reduces those. Uh, It leads to weight stability over time. It um, helps to uh, improve or not harm um, uh, the psychology of uh, of eating. So a person's sort of uh, mental relationship with food. So it doesn't uh, appear to re- result or increase the risk of eating pathologies that we might see with something like an intentional weight loss, like with macro tracking mm. and is not associated with um, reduced dietary quality. So it's something that surprises a lot of people. They kind of, when they think of intuitive eating, they're like, Oh, if I just ate intuitively, I'd eat just like only Cadbury eggs and Reese's yeah, cups, yeah. you know, for <laughs> three years. Um, and, and so, so that actually doesn't appear to happen. And um looking long-term over the course of a year, uh, they tend to see, um, not surprisingly, you know, not large changes uh, in body weight, but we don't see large changes in body weight on average in a weight loss uh, focused intervention either. Um, But, uh, but, you know, we do see um, improvements in things like blood glucose and blood lipids. So it would be probably appropriate for a lot of people who are trying to find a place of balance um, with their food relationship. If they're finding that they're in sort of this yo-yo dieting cycle where they're doing a lot of restricting and then overeating um, or in individuals with an eating disorder concurrently with other types of therapy. Um, Maybe, you know, we probably need to wait and see um, how it might work for individuals with anorexia nervosa because in those cases, in those individuals might need to engage in mechanical eating to safely regain body weight. So intuitive eating is weight neutral. So it wouldn't be an appropriate intervention where intentional weight change might be needed. And I think it's also important to point out that, you know, the intention, intentional weight change is not an inherently harmful process. 
but it is the reason behind the intentional weight change and the way that it's gone about that could increase the risk of potential harm. So that's the other, and then the other caveat is that, you know, I intuitive eating is neither a goal, it's not just like an end place, it's a practice, mm. nor is it an appropriate fit for everyone. Mm. You know, it's one potential way of procuring food and managing one's internal and external environments. Mm. Um, and like you said, you know, it is, it's more than, it's it's not um, how it's kind of portrayed on Instagram. <laughs> yeah. uh, and Evelyn Tripley has said it too, you know, it's not just pink donuts. It's not um, right. eating whatever you feel like, that there are other aspects to it aside from, you know, there is respecting hunger and fullness, mm. but yeah, like you mentioned the gentle nutrition and um, you know, respecting your body and ensuring that you're eating in a way that um, di- that feels good in terms of digestion and satisfaction. Um, and that gives you energy and um, also that you're meeting your other needs that are you know not hunger with other means that are probably going to be more effective. Mm. So when people are concerned about practicing intuitive eating in a tempting food environment, they might be thinking that intuitive eating is just eating whatever sounds really good or whatever looks good. Um, And then that, you know, okay, well, I'm in this tempting food environment. How will I ever navigate it? You know, got to keep that stuff out of the house. Right. It's not intuitive eating is basically saying like, you know what? Um, to give you like a sex ed example, (laughs) people are going to engage in sexual activities. Do we say like, that's really risky. Don't do that. No, that's not effective at all. It is. Here's a bunch of birth control methods that will help you either not get pregnant and, or not contract a venereal disease. Use one of these. Here's some information about this. Now you can navigate this environment in a more informed way. Yeah. You know? So that's kind of how I look at it. Like we're saying, okay, go out there and like, now you can determine whether you're really hungry or not. You can discern what actually would be tasty versus what you're eating because you haven't had a cookie in eight months. And now anything will do once you see those like stale cookies on the, you know, the, the break room desk. Yeah. You deserve better than that. Totally. I think if you look at any one of the, the, statements of intuitive eating and you only look at that one thing you take that you're gonna you're gonna miss out on the the whole the whole system or the whole thing right it's like if you were to take i think one of them is um giving yourself unconditional permission to eat um is that is that one of them yeah so what would you say to someone who's like they just like hone in on that one little bit and they're like look if i give myself unconditional permission to eat and this is probably someone who's engaged in weight you know in, in interventions diet interventions in the past and they say, hey, look, if I do that, I'm going to eat a jar of peanut butter like every single day and I just mm-hmm. won't be able to stop. Um, mm-hmm. because, and, I, and, and I'm going to preface that by probably saying that they are just not taking into account the other factors that are in, in place there. Like how, mm-hmm. like how do I feel? Like how I want to choose foods that are going to make me feel good after a meal and help my digestion and things like this. But how would you like give someone some advice in that specific situation? Because I think a lot of people have these – um, a lot of clients I work with have these like cravings, right? And they're like, I just, if I eat that food, I'll just keep going. And so it's a case of, well, we can, you know, there's a few different things we can do here, but what would you say to that individual? Hmm. Well, I mean, it really is individual specific, but I can think of people with whom I've had a similar conversation. Hmm. So unconditional permission to eat is about challenging the food police 
um, which is to say that we remove the restrictions and the morality attached to foods. So no foods are off limits after this. And that unconditional permission to eat means if you would like to eat, then you go ahead and eat and you eat what you want to eat. And that if you do that, even if you didn't know the other principles, even if you thought I'm, I'm gonna just ignore those other principles. And the person said, I think I will eat a jar of peanut butter every day for the rest of my life. Then I might ask them first, um, what makes you think that? And then they would tell me probably like, okay, I love peanut butter. Cause I'll tell you what, it's funny. You pick this example. I used to have to freeze my peanut butter. Wow. Oh, wow. And, okay. <laughs> so so yeah. it was too hard to eat. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that's how I thought I had to handle it was I would yeah. freeze my peanut butter. Yeah. So, um, and, and then I would ask them, you know, what would be sort of the West, the best and the worst parts about that, you know, eating a jar of peanut butter every day. Um, and then I would ask how they felt about giving themselves a permission to eat a jar of peanut butter every day. And I can guarantee you, and I don't make a lot of absolutist statements. I can't think of any person that I know that would actually eat a whole jar of peanut butter every single day for the rest of their life. Because you know what, after a few days of eating peanut butter at every meal, which is what I did, I was like, I don't really care about peanut butter anymore. Like right. I've had a lot of peanut butter. I can have it anytime. It's not good with some things. Peanut butter toast with like fish, not good. That's not, nope. Not a good combo. That's that's, yeah, it was really gross. But like, I, that's what, and it's so funny because I heard this from Nancy Clark. So she's a sport dietitian. And she talked about this a little bit, like she didn't talk about intuitive eating, but she talked about, you know, clients or working, you know, working with clients um, that had foods that they felt were kind of like trigger foods. And she was like, well, you know, I just tell them like, go ahead, have it every meal if you want. So I was like, peanut butter, every meal, here I go right. for the rest of my life. Yeah. And, and you just, you, you habituate it after a while. Mm -hmm. And so this, you do this with foods over time. Once you have the unconditional permission to eat, you don't have to, A, eat all the food right now because you're not going to get it forever, uh, um, or B, settle for some subpar version of the food. I call this eating around the craving. Okay. You eat around it and you eat around it and you eat around it until you're like, wow, I ate a lot and I'm really uncomfortable now, but I still don't feel satisfied because I didn't, I didn't eat the thing that I wanted to eat. Yeah. Um, and C, you don't end up in this this pendulum of restriction and then overeating you know because you you don't eat it you don't eat it and then oh gosh maybe you you're gonna go out to dinner finally it's been six months or something you're starving you save up all of your calories for dinner and then what happens when dinner comes you eat at, in this place of carnal hunger until you're uncomfortably full and then you've proven to yourself i can't be trusted around food yeah but you know what would have happened if you had eaten just balanced meals throughout the day and you came to dinner and you sat there and paid attention to it and really enjoyed it and then thought, well, I can eat this whenever I want. I could take leftovers home and then you get to enjoy it a second time. Right. I mean, it's just a completely different way of um, engaging with your food, but it does require uh, pushing out of your comfort zone and it requires you trusting yourself, which is very difficult to do. And may also require some preliminary steps. So some folks may need to actually start with the mechanical eating first. Mm 
um, so that they can get into a routine of regular meals throughout the day that can help to prevent them from having an overeating situation at night because they're just so hungry by then. And it can also help them practice recognizing their hunger signals and recognizing their satiety signals, which are a little bit different when we're talking about just like just being full, which is like a physical sensation. That's part of it. But the other aspect is, wow, that really hit the spot. That's what I really wanted to eat. Mm. And there's a lot of thought that comes to to the practice of intuitive eating too. You know, when you're thinking about like, oh, what is it that I'm going to eat? Like what textures, what flavors do I want? So there's a lot of thought, but it's different from the rumination that we get when we feel like we're restricting all the time and then having overeating phases. No, I so resonate with that. Even with myself in, you know, fat loss phases, I, you know, I'm thinking about, okay, cool, like I'm going to plan to go to this restaurant and that cool vegan spot and blah, blah, blah. And I'm planning these things out. But then when I'm in a, in a, I guess, a, a less of a calorie controlled state, maybe I'm in a gaining phase or something like that. I just don't even care anymore. I'm like, you know, if I don't go to a restaurant this week, I just don't even care at all. Like there's just, there's just no real desire there. And then when I can choose, when I choose a meal, it's based off, yeah, what's going to hit the spot. I really like that. What's going to hit the spot in that moment, but also using my nutritional knowledge to go, okay, cool. But what's going to hit the spot, but also what's going to, you know, provide the nutrients that I want and what's going to keep me feeling satiated and, and for the next few hours and things like that. So like you said, there's so many thoughts that come into it. Um, but I guess kind of trying to round this out and kind of land this a little bit. If we have, you know, I guess this is for myself working with clients, um, for a lot of clients who are say post a fat loss phase and they're wanting to really look at the strategies that are going to help them to maintain this body weight long term. What would you say, would you say that some of these principles of intuitive eating could be used in those scenarios. Obviously, they're not going to be doing true intuitive eating because that's a weight neutral approach. So whether their weight goes up and down is irrelevant. Whereas if I want this person to learn to maintain this new body weight that they that they want to maintain, um, do you think we can use some of these, these principles and strategies from intuitive eating? Or if not, what do you think are some really good go-to strategies to help an individual maintain that body weight? Mm, that's tough because, you know, after, so that post-diet phase, they're going to have in, an elevation in hunger. Mm. So they'll have probably still some preoccupations with food, um, uh, more hunger signaling, um, depending on how they've reached that, they may have, you know, had, they may have experienced some, um, rigid cognitive restraint. And so they may be somewhere on the spectrum of some level of pathology around eating. So they felt very restricted. And so maybe they're having a hard time, um, eating an intentional amount of food. Mm. So there are sort of these obstacles that we're faced with after a fat loss phase. And I think it's also important to, to think about the fact that like weight is an outcome and it's, it's um, modifiable, but it is an outcome of our physical activity habits and our eating habits. So if we reached a weight through means that felt only barely sustainable, then it might be hard to maintain that new lower body weight because we're only going to be able to bring our food up little bit, um, or we have to maintain a higher level of physical activity sort of forever. Um, so if we can reach that new body weight, 
um, through means that are generally sustainable long term, then the outcome of those sustainable habits is that the weight will be sort of stable. Mm. Um, you know, so once we want to stop losing fat, we eat a little bit more. But I think that at this point, the best evidence that we have for weight maintenance is really that it just comes down to regular and fairly high levels of physical activity, um, self-monitoring, which does come with its own set of risks, but does seem to be effective in terms of maintaining weight. Don't know what we could say about mental health, um, but in a lot of people with overweight or obesity, it doesn't look like it necessarily has um, a significant harm. Um, but yeah, so some level of self-monitoring um, and maintenance of a fairly stable, but also flexible dietary pattern. So looking at individuals who um, include those trigger foods um, and looking at individuals who are a little bit more flexible on weekends and around holiday periods, that those tend to be associated with um, greater uh, success with long-term um, weight maintenance versus the people who take like a really you know structured and rigid approach. Right. But yeah, think of what you're doing now. Are you going to be able to do pretty much the same stuff in another two or five years? Then, you know, weight loss is probably going to be sustained. Um, and the reality is that that's not going to be the case for a lot of people. And I think that the other half of this work is removing the stigma from weight gain mm. um, because that just further drives the processes that increase those eating pathologies and that reduce a person's sense of self-worth. Mm. So if we can remove the stigma from weight gain and say, yeah, this is actually a pretty normal thing that happens to the majority of people that lose weight, here's what you can do to help you maintain. But if you regain your weight, that's a normal thing that happens. Like you're right. not a bad person. You're not lacking self-control or willpower. You didn't fail. Let's just look at what changed and see if there are things that you might want to do differently going forward. And if not, then guess what? This is your maintainable body weight at this lifestyle for you. And if you really like the life you're living, this is the weight that you're at. Right. I don't know. You know, like, yeah, yeah. I think that that's like, I hope that's the focus for most people is like, the, is the life you're living the one that you want to be living right now? Yeah. Are there places where you could seek more balance? Look at that. And then like weight will change um, as energy balance changes. Mm -hmm. And like if energy balance is changing because you're like, oh man, I really like myself. I'm taking really good care of myself. I walk my dog all the time. This is super great. I love vegetables. Awesome. Yeah. If it's because you feel like you're starving yourself and you don't go out with your friends anymore yeah that might not be sustainable that. yeah it's so good it's it's a much deeper question to ask yourself it's you know it's to go am i actually am i living the lifestyle that i want to live that's gonna you know lead to the the outcome that i want so that's a yeah that's a really good way to to kind of round this out i'll ask you this final question um yeah. um i guess for just to give some people some practical stuff to take away in terms of if we are wanting to reduce this weight stigma long term, what are some of the what are the the ways that people can have these types of healthy conversations with people in their own lives around um, body weight and and weight stigma and how we can start to reduce these as like societal norms and and what is considered to be the ideal appearance? Wow, that's a big question. It's a big question to finish with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think. I think a lot of it is about challenging the beliefs we have about why people gain weight and why people are in the bodies that they're in. Um, you know, there are just like, I mean, these beliefs are made up. 
they don't come from, it's not like we have research on like, oh yes, individuals in this body size have less self-control and willpower. No. Um, and actually like we can quantify those things. We can look at these traits in people and we tend not to see that. Now there are correlations between things like conscientiousness and, um, uh, and, and I want to say like weight stability. So that means that maybe people who are um, very good at planning because conscientiousness isn't really about and, and self-discipline aren't really about like control so much. It's about planning and be paying attention to detail and carrying things out. So maybe those people are more likely to do something like count macros. And then that is associated as a self as form of self-monitoring with like long-term weight management. But that doesn't mean that individuals who gain weight or individuals in large bodies or fat people are somehow uh, lacking character mm. um, or that uh, or, or our other belief about um, the, you know, the, the health costs of individuals with obesity and this um, belief that we have about their use of, of sort of like healthcare resources. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, one. it's yes. And, and one thing, and I, you know, I realize there are biases within me mm -hmm. because I, you know, other people want to have like three children and they think that that is a super important part of their life. And so for them, it's totally worth the cost of having children, which in the U.S. to have one child is like tens of thousands of dollars worth of healthcare costs for mm. just one kid, just right. to go to the hospital and and have it and then go home, not counting all the rest of like taking it to the hospital for the rest of its 18 years and then whatever environmental impacts that child has now. So. It's very much, you can really see when you put those two together, people are like, well, of course, because babies are important and whatnot, we're hugely overpopulated. Like yeah. we're not at a loss of people in the yeah, world, that's right. but you can see that it's the difference in values and like the beliefs that we have that yeah. like that type of healthcare spending is okay, yeah. but this type is not. It's not even about the healthcare spending. It's about our beliefs about the worthiness of that person mm. and what we think they're allowed to use of the healthcare system and of the resources. Though I don't know how to challenge that. I don't know, but I think yeah. those are, that's rhetoric, you know? It's like, it gets to the, like our values and our sort of like, beliefs and and dialogues around body size mm. that need to be challenged yeah. to the point where we can say like oh okay you know because I, I had a person who um who reached out to me and was alarmed at someone who had pointed out that there was like a genetic link between um you know maternal uh and and, and childhood overweight and obesity um, and I was like, well, yeah, you know, it does seem that to be that there's like, there's a genetic predisposition to body size. And he said, well, this seems kind of like, you know, eugenics and, um, and like, that's alarming. And I said, well, you know, it seems alarm. It, 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 you could look at it in that way to say that if we say there's a genetic link, maybe some, someone would say, oh, well, then those people shouldn't have offspring, but that's only because body fat is stigmatized. No one says that about looking at like eye color. Yeah. There's a genetic link to eye color. Okay. Wow, but yeah. it would be stigmatizing if we said, and blue eyes are better than brown eyes. Yeah, that's right. So that's, you know, that's where it is. It's like we have these values, judgments, and just these attachments to things that we've kind of created. Um, and we can look back and say like, oh, these are the origins. Like literally we can say, okay, but it was around like 1918 that we started to change our minds about body size. 
And yet looking back at that and seeing that we, we have a hard time saying like, well, maybe we should change our minds again because like clearly this is made up, but maybe because we're not like taking that kind of historical perspective and looking back to say, you know, we're kind of repeating these same mistakes. Yeah. Um, that's probably what really needs to change. Like deep, awesome. deep change. Yeah. Oh, that's really good. That's really uh, enlightening. And I think, you know, for the listeners, it's just about having those those conversations with people around you and saying, hey, what do we value? Like, let's look at this a little bit more, um, a little deeper and maybe from a, a uh, an outside perspective and, and um, yeah, yeah, really assessing our own belief system. So that's really awesome. So thank you so much for this conversation. I think there's so many different you know, areas you could take it and you could go on for a long time and it's just, you know, it's a massive topic. So I do want to encourage the listeners to go and check out some of your other podcasts you've done. And of course, check out the Bridging the Gap series, which I'll link in the description um, as well as, you know, anything else that you, you'd love to play, go ahead for um, doing that, Gabby. Yeah, yeah. Oh my gosh. Um, well, yeah. So I have a third article coming out very soon, actually looking at the history of Hayes and the body positive and body acceptance movement. Perfect. So um, those can all be found on btgcomprehensivecoaching.com or my website, Vitamin PhD Nutrition. Um, Shannon and I also have the Comprehensive Coaching Facebook community. So it is a subscription based membership. Um, we have close to 50 people now, which all is right. amazing. So we just good. started this at the end of, of like October. All right. Um, yeah. So, and we talk about um, uh, practical applications in coaching and these concepts as well, things like weight stigma and how that affects our clients who are then afraid of stopping, you know, with the macro tracking. Um, so yeah, keep your eyes peeled for that. And, cool. and Shannon and I are going to have um, more webinars coming out um, later this year. We are going to have another iteration of the three-part Bridging the Gap um, webinar series with our small group um, at practical applications coaching. Cool. We both actually do um, mentorships as well. So we work with coaches that would like to learn more about coaching in this way. And of course, um, like I said, a diverse group of clients who are interested in sort of working in, in the messy middle also. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on board and maybe we'll have to get you back on and chat about gut health at some stage. I'm sure um, <laughs> that might be uh, something new for you to chat about again after a little break. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm fixing up my first set of edits on the RP um, gut health science book. So, All right. Um, yeah, so that'll be coming up hopefully um, end of this year. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, you guys are really pumping out the books over at RPA. It's a, it's a lot of good content. Yep, yep. Okay, cool. Thanks, Gabby. Take some time to digest this one, I think. And as I mentioned in the beginning, maybe put this one on again a little further down your listen later list. It's definitely worth a second go. I'm not going to try and summarize such an in-depth topic because quite frankly, I'm unqualified to do so. But... I will say this, when it comes down to our bodies and the bodies of our fellow humans, there's no one size fits all approach. You have every right to choose weight loss. Just know your whys, understand where they stem from, where they really stem from, and own your decision to pursue it. I think you should vet any coach you plan to work with. Um, are you just another testimonial for their business or is your physical, mental, and emotional health really a priority to them remember weight stigma is ingrained in our worlds so take every opportunity to call this out push back and stand up 
when you see shaming in practice. Along with this, be gracious with yourself, right? So perfectionism is not attainable. Prioritize self-care, honor your hunger cues, also honor your fullness cues, right? Exercise regularly because you enjoy feeling fit and are proud of what your body can do. I encourage you to check out Gabby's work, maybe read the first article in the Bridge in the Gap series and align yourself with what the true definition of intuitive eating is. Maybe to kickstart you for this journey, I'm going to read through the 10 steps of intuitive eating as I believe whatever you are currently doing with the nutrition, whether it's tracking macros for fat loss or you're eating for muscle gain or you're completely lost in what to do, elements of these 10 intuitive eating principles can be applied to each. So let's kick this off. Number one, reject the diet mentality. The false hope of losing weight quickly, easily, and permanently. The lie that weight regain is failure. The promise that there's a new or better diet that will work for you. The second one, honor your hunger. Remain biologically fed through adequate energy intake to prevent excessive hunger that may lead to overeating and counter your intentions to eat moderately and consciously. Learn to respond to biological hunger to rebuild your trust in self around food. Eating when hungry rather than in response to a specific set of rules. Number three, make peace with food. Unconditional permission to eat prevents feelings of deprivation and subsequent binging. Habituation through regular exposure dilutes the alluring quality of forbidden foods, whereas rigid rules trigger rebellion. Number four, challenge the food police. Reject the idea of good or bad foods and food morality to reduce guilt after eating. Ignore inappropriate comments from others and liberate yourself from justifying food choices to others or yourself. Number five, feel your fullness. Listen to signals that tell you you're no longer hungry. Pause mid-meal to reassess your enjoyment and fullness. Practice conscious, mindful eating. Number six, discover the satisfaction factor. Eat what you really want in an inviting environment and focus on the pleasure of the meal in concert with your biological cues. Savor your meal so you aren't left seeking other foods to hit the spot. Number seven, cope with your emotions without using food. Truly assess and meet your emotional and mental needs without food. Food can't fulfill emotional or mental needs. Applying it this way may only add the discomfort of overeating to those difficult emotions, leaving one with the discomfort of those original emotions and the added discomfort of overeating. Number eight, Respect your body. Recognize and accept your genetic blueprint and predispositions. It is difficult to reject diet mentality if you are overly critical of your body shape and unrealistic about your expectations. Respecting your body means taking care of your health, treating it with dignity, and meeting its basic needs. Number nine, exercise. Replace militant exercise with enjoyable physical activity. Focus on the benefits of movement rather than the calorie burn. Focusing on the enjoyment of the opportunity to move rather than an external motivator like weight loss will be a stronger motivator in the moment. And lastly, number 10, honor your health with gentle nutrition. Make food choices that honor your health, taste buds, and your digestive comfort so they feel good. You don't have to eat a perfect diet to be healthy. No single food is inherently going to make or break a healthy lifestyle. 
emphasize moderation, balance, and a variety of fruits and vegetables, nutrient-dense foods, protein-rich foods, quality fats, and whole foods. Processed foods are generally less nutrient-dense. Balance is something to be achieved over a period of time, and it does not have to be reached at each meal. Focus on consistency and progress. At times, it is appropriate to prioritize the nutritional quality of foods and eat intuitively. So guys, that is the 10 principles of intuitive eating. I encourage you to go away and read more of that if you like. I'll put the link for the Bridging the Gap series which details these intuitive eating steps in it in the show notes. And obviously, if you want to get in contact with Gabby, her links will be in the description as well. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Let's keep the conversation going. Hit me up on Instagram. Hit me up on email, wherever you want to do it. And we can chat about these topics in more detail. It was a heavy hitter episode, guys. So let it marinate for a little bit. Maybe go back for a second listen. And I'll see you in the next episode. Keep an eye on your social medias. Keep an eye on the podcast apps for when that one releases. As always, guys, go ahead, lift some weights. Or if you're like me at the moment, go for a run. And we'll see you in the next one.